and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast, or in this case, Sodcast. I'm David Smith, and tonight I'm so excited to be here talking about the latest sequel to my favourite horror franchise, Spiral. From the Book of Saw to give it its full, long, and awkward name. This is a series I grew up on, and I've watched all but one on the big screen. Now, after 14 months of not being in a cinema, I was delighted to go back. Joining me to watch it, and now to talk about it, I've got my sometimes editor and all-time partner, Emma. Hi, Emma! Hi, David! Along with Spiral, we're going to talk about the franchise more broadly, along with the latest entry in another series we both love, Resident Evil Village. Please note that we will be including full spoilers throughout, so tread carefully. Before all that, though, Emma, what the heck have you been watching lately? Well, as you know, David, I've been watching The Fly and Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, because those are both horror movies from 1986, the year of your birth. That's right, and somebody had a birthday very recently. Indeed. So, in addition to those films, we also watched Aliens on the Sunday. But if we'd watched Aliens, then we could have kept the 1986 theme going. Mm, So what do you think of The Fly? Well, I'd never seen it before, but I'm a massive fan of Jeff Goldblum, purely off the back of Jurassic Park and Thor Ragnarok. So I thought it was... A bit brutal, to be honest. If I were having another 1986-themed birthday party, I probably wouldn't choose to fly because it's not really a film that gets you in the party mood. Yes, indeed. Watching that shortly before a Chinese takeaway was uh, was the bad choice. Mm, I mean, it's not just that it's gruesome, though. It's that it's so tragic. I think that the tragedy is very much sold purely because of Gina Davis's performance. She brings an element of believable sadness to the whole situation, which is very much counterposed to Jeff Goldblum's complete off-the-wall performance, which only Jeff Goldblum could have done. I agree. He was absolutely perfectly cast in that as well, Mm -hmm. in terms of the kind of idiosyncrasies that the character would have before the transformation, it meant that there's always a hint of Jeff Goldblum below all the makeup, you know? Indeed. So even when he becomes the final product, I suppose, for want of a better term, you can still see underneath the surface it's him. But equally, as a human, the Jeff Goldblum-isms make him seem like the sort of human that could potentially turn into a fly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very great uh, example of like where horror potentially gets underrated when you're looking at things like makeup and effects, because so much of the film hinges upon how well Cronenberg captures this transformation. You know, the mutation that he's undergoing, the change that we see in him that begins relatively gradual. And then towards the end, this horrific imagery is man and machine get combined. And, uh, you know, he's coming out holding the gun to his head. The whole thing's really, really sad. 
And it makes you feel for an animatronic fly in a way that I didn't think I would. Absolutely. I thought the pathos at the end, like the way that the face, the monster really looks distraught and and it's it's really an achievement. It also just occurs to me right now, I was thinking about the third character in the movie, which is Gina Davis's boss, whose name I've completely forgotten. I've also forgotten Gina Davis's character's name. But it's interesting that he sort of undergoes a transformation from like monster to man. Because he begins as like a very seedy, kind of distrustful, um, distrustful. Um, Untrustworthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he is her boss who she's had like a sexual relationship with previously. And at the very, you know, when we were first introduced to him or in the second scene we're introduced to him in, and he's like let himself into her apartment and is taking a shower. Oh, like yeah. he's he's consistently making like unwanted sexual advances towards her and being a complete arsehole. But by the end of the film, like he's undergone this transformation where he sort of gets a, a bit of a redemption arc, which which really doesn't make much sense unless you think about it as sort of like the opposite to the sort of arc that Jeff Goldblum undergoes. I never saw it like that, and now I'll never unsee it like that. Now, uh, what next? Oh, what do you think of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives? Well, as we discussed while watching it, Jason Lives is one of the first films that actually introduces a bit of comedy to the whole series, which is much Mm. needed by that point. I mean, Part 6, although potentially we're going to contradict ourselves later, but part six is not generally um, the highlight of any series that goes on for that long. Mm -hmm. So it's quite silly by that point, but it kind of needs to be silly in order for the audience to get much out of it. Yeah, I'd agree for that. I think for one thing the film lacks is any real sense of peril. I mean, it's the only one that has any kids at Camp Crystal Lake. Mm-hmm. which should make Jason seem even more dangerous than usual. But it really doesn't. I think also it's lacking a really charismatic final girl. That being said, I agree this one is a lot of fun. I've, I really liked Tommy Jarvis's return in it, even if the timeline gets uh, somewhat sodded up as a consequence of him aging so much before part seven and part eight, which you're meant to believe is taking place in like the year 2000 or something. Uh, but I think, I think it's, a re- I think it's really fun. I think it's, uh, I, I would disagree with you about the lack of charismatic final girl. First of all, I don't think Friday the 13th is really a series where there are a lot of interesting female characters or interesting characters full stop, to be honest, with the exception of Friday three, I can't really think of any other female characters that really stick out. But I think something that was quite interesting about Jason Lives is that you have the you know the the female character in Tommy Jarvis's love interest, who's so well characterized. I also can't remember her name. That might be more of a reflection of my name remembering abilities than any error on the part of the writers. But um, she is sort of the sexual aggressor. She she's the one who um, kind of tries to get more involved with Tommy Jarvis and. I think the fact that she's like the sheriff's daughter also adds a little bit of dramatic tension. She's not particularly 
original, but I think she's watchable enough. She's entertaining. You know, like her driving around, <laughs> driving around in her Camaro or whatever car it is, uh, when she pushes Tommy Jarvis's head into her crotch to like try and hide <laughs> him from the police, while she's like, you know, speeding down these like windy country roads, is entertaining. I liked her obvious daddy issues in it. It's like, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just going to go in and flirt with a prisoner. You imagine she just does this shit all the time. And I'm sure, I, I mean, I might have been wrong, but I think when we first see her as well, she's like wearing a gold necklace with like a sheriff's hat on it. Like, it's just a <laughs> bit cringy. I challenge what you said, though, about the lack of charismatic final girls in the Friday 13 films. I mean, frankly, I think Alice in the first one is very memorable. I really like Ginny in the set in the second one as well. You know, Trish Jarvis in the fourth was was uh, was plenty of them. I totally forgot about Ginny to this for for this moment, but I actually agree with you. So yeah. I'll, I'll take that I'll take that back because I I really did like Ginny. Cool, I Ginny. Just, I, I forgot about her. Basically, all the better films in that franchise very have memorable characters. Anything else you want to talk about that you've seen lately? I mean, we could talk about Alien a little bit, but it, mm-hmm. it sort of feels like just putting in a couple of sentences about Alien is sort of doing it a disservice. We'll probably do a dedicated Alien episode at some point. So basically, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep stum on this one. But what do you reckon of the first one? I mean, I love Alien. Anybody that knows me that's listening to this will know that I prefer Alien to Aliens and that this is a point of much contention in our relationship. It was in our wedding vows and everything. (laughs) Alien, I just think it's the... I I won't... Aliens does have horror elements. I'm not going to be one of the people that says, oh, Aliens is an action movie. Like, it is much more action-oriented, but I think that's just partially because it's got a much bigger cast and there's there's a couple of different things going on at once, at least, like, early on in the film. But Alien, to me, is much... The, the tension is much greater. The, the fact that at the beginning of that series, we don't know that Sigourney Weaver... You know, if you're, if you're coming to it completely afresh it's not clear from the beginning who the protagonist of that film is going to be and because of the way that that Ripley is characterized as the sort of straight-laced one who's following the rules one of only two women in the crew and clearly has contentious relationships with a lot of the others who are put across as more comedic or more like fun characters she's not necessarily immediately the person you root for but you do root for her by the end like she she comes through as a survivor like she's rightly celebrated as one of the most interesting strong female characters from the horror genre but also just from cinema in general like Ripley's an icon and I think that Alien is the film where we like get to see that journey from from you know her going from being a worker from being this kind of straight-edged person to really becoming like the heroine at the heart of that franchise. Yes, I completely agree with you on that one. I think it's a a very enjoyable character journey, very enjoyable performance as well. It's maybe a film which is a victim of its own success because you just think of how fucking creepy that monster would have been if you were seeing it for the first time in 1979. Whereas when I was growing up, Everyone had all the toys and stuff like that, you know? There's already, when I was young, there's already like two of them when I was born. 
And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I witnessed parts three and four coming out as a kid. So it's maybe been overexposed over time and that potentially makes us forget just how great an idea Alien actually is. And something that really sticks with me on rewatches, again, I'll be going to this another time because I'm sure we're bound to do a quadrilogy episode. I love the architecture of the ship in it. You know, it's, it's such a grimy look. You know, this isn't like Star Trek or Star Wars or 2001 Space Odyssey where everything's really clinical and very bright. You know, this is dark, it's murky. These are space truckers, basically. Yeah, that was more or less what I was going to go on to say. You know, we watched this film at the weekend over Zoom with friends, one of whom had never seen it before. But she knew that Ripley survived because, you know, it's the same as knowing that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Like, we know that from, (laughs) you know, culture, from pop culture Mm. references and, you know, everything from family guy to saturday night live to, you know all, all of these things are just floating around as memes like you're gonna have spoilers for these giant franchises without ever you know coming near them but it would have been amazing to watch alien with with absolutely no knowledge of of kind of, of what it, i think that what you're saying there about the fact that it's truckers in space you know alien is an inescapably, you know, science fiction oriented film. But at the same time, like, you know, just because, well, it's alien, you know, they they have to discover this creature that is so, something so far from human, so scary. But also the film could have easily taken place with a few changes on a freighter at sea or in mm-hmm. an oil rig or some or somewhere like that. It's not... It's not one of these films that, like Star Wars, sorts of revels in the, the in a galaxy far away of it all. Yes, because as we were saying about the Guardian columnist a few weeks ago, who was going, "Oh, Aliens is a sci-fi film. It's not a horror film. It has a sci-fi location, but it's a horror narrative. This is basically a haunted house film. You know, you're right. This could easily take place in a ship as well, just a boat, with some changes. I suppose what space does." is it gives you the ultimate no-way-out scenario. Mm. As we say, in space, nobody can hear you scream. In space, you can't call 999. You can't call up the Coast Guard or anything along those lines. And uh, Yeah, they don't have to worry about how anybody's supposed to have done anything without mobile signal. Mm-hmm. And uh, on to the things that I've watched lately. I will keep this quick, because I know that you haven't seen any of these. Silver Bullet, based upon the... Stephen King novella, or novelette, as he was referred to it. It's a werewolf film with a really good sense of location, a pretty good mystery at its core, and just a very immersive atmosphere. It sometimes does get a little bit too Garth Morangi's Dark Place for its own good, but at the same time, it's a very underrated Stephen King outing. Speaking of underrated Stephen King... Cat's Eyes as well. Cat's Eyes. It's three decent, slightly connected short stories. We're all joined up by this journey of a very inquisitive cat that's wandering around America. All of the stories look great. They're a lot of fun to watch. This is maybe the lighter side of Stephen King. I think it was a PG-13 or 12 over here when it came out. And it's not really going into the blood and guts or anything. It sort of shows you, if needed any reminder... 
how versatile an offer Stephen King really is. Very entertaining and just, again, so much fun. And then we also watched Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive is a hot mess. There's some goofy fun bits, like, for instance, all the... If anyone doesn't know, by the way, it's about trucks or technology starts coming to life, but it's mostly just trucks. And um, there's a fun bit where all the trucks line up so the humans can start giving them petrol. It's It was made at the height of Stephen King's cocaine addiction. Supposedly, he was quite erratic when it came to writing. Um, he, a lot of it looks very thrown together. And the trailer is such hubris where Stephen King's on there going, hey, if you want Stephen King done properly, do it yourself, and things like this, undermining the many great directors who've dealt with his stuff. I assume he was aiming at Stanley Kubrick. Of course, he also is having a go at Brian De Palma, among many others. And then turns out this, I would say, fairly substandard, fairly badly written movie, where, in fact, the whole nature of the threat is introduced in some text on screen at the end, uh, that's right, the beginning, and then it's like how to get rid of it is just explained at the end of more on-screen text. The uh, other stuff that I watched, I watched, I watched Empty Man, which feels like two different films that are both quite good but really don't work very well when they're smushed together. You've got a nice urban legend style beginning, and by that I mean it's about urban legends, not it's like the film urban legend. And then it gets into a bit more kind of possession territory in the second half, a bit more of a kind of conspiracy angle, but I just don't think the link between the two works. And finally, the one I want to mention here for Ross, if you're listening, I finally watched Final Girls. Final Girls is a loving send-up of slashers. It's got a lot of heart to it. A really good mother-daughter relationship at its core. However, it's a little bit too bubblegummy and a little bit too tame to resemble the thing that it's a pastiche of. Not really a huge complaint, but it did bother me. Now, before we get on to Resident Evil 8, I wanted to ask your opinion on a couple of trailers that we saw at the cinema last night. What did you think of the looks of A Quiet Place Part 2? So I liked A Quiet Place. I did find the trailer a little bit disorientating because it seemed to start off as with with like action which must have taken place before the events of A Quiet Place. And that confused me a bit. Um, yeah, I think it'll probably be a cold opener for the film. Because it's presumably they're like, all right, now we have a budget, so let's do more things that we couldn't do the first time around. Yeah, which I don't really think added a huge amount to it because we we sort of already know where the characters have ended up, like from watching the first one. So that didn't really intrigue me that much. I'm sure I've seen a, an older trailer for A Quiet Place too that that had um, more of a focus on this like new male character who seems to. Have, have entered the fray which I actually seemed a bit creepier to me I liked that one better the religious guy I don't know if he's religious the guy that, that uh, Emily Blunt and the family meet and she's I'm sure the first trailer had a, a conversation with like they seem to have teamed up with this guy was the impression I got from the first trailer 
Yeah, I got the feeling that he's religious. It looked like he's got a bit of a cult going there. Uh, I'm wondering if it goes mm-hmm. in a kind of direction of like a cult that like worships the species or something along those lines. I wonder if it's going to end up being like that Netflix film that was a complete rip-off, although apparently was in development before it. Oh, oh, that could be that could be one of two. You could be thinking of the silence or Bird Box. <laughs> I think it's the silence. I'm thinking of mm. the one with the like pterodactyl type looking creatures. Oh yeah, yeah. We've introduced the cult in the last third of a movie or something. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> like weird, they they have this standoff that we still got like most of the country to cross, but then it just cuts to them over there. You're like, what happened to the third act? <laughs> It must be even less satisfying in book form. I mean, personally, I thought this looked quite good. I, uh, I was not huge on the original Quiet Place. I think with this one, what appeals to me is uh, the bigger scale, you know, the idea of seeing what these monsters can do to cities, for instance. I do think that, because it's another example of a non-speaking entity as your baddie, then presumably it's going to have to focus on kind of intertribal conflict between mm. humans, you know, who controls the resources. Classic zombie plot. Yeah, I mean, most of these sorts of films go down the sort of Malthusian competition for limited resources, and A Quiet Place Part 2 will probably do the same. But hey, we only have a week to find out. <laughs> and lastly... What did you think of the trailer for The Conjuring Part 3? The devil made me do it. Underwhelming. I have enjoyed Conjuring films in the past. I really liked Annabelle Creation. That's definitely my favourite one. Um, But it's interesting that it is one of the few that doesn't include Vera Farmiga, who I think is by far the best um, actor in the series. And I also think that the chemistry between her and Patrick Wilson like carries some of the sillier aspects of, of the Conjuring films. But even though it looks like they were going to have slightly more to do in terms of like dramatic stakes in this movie, like they, they really made it seem like it was gonna they were gonna be put in real danger, which normally they they kind of are are free of. You don't normally feel in the conjuring films like Ed and Lorraine, they it never really feels that they personally are in danger, although they're there to kind of support the the other characters in the films. But it seems like this conjuring film is very much going in the direction of placing Lorraine in danger personally. So that should be more interesting to me than it is on the basis of the trailer. The thing that really jumps out at me with this one is how insanely bad taste the film seems. <laughs> You're like, okay, for using a real-life trial as a basis where the uh, actual defendant went, oh, sorry I committed this murder. It was uh, it was Satan that made me do this. And what I just thought was, okay, could you imagine being related to the victims in this one. And uh, then, because presumably, presumably the film is going to go down the route where Satan did make him do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not a Conjuring Universe film. Uh, like, there's been a few of these sorts of movies where it's all right, let's, let, you know, let's, let's focus upon a real murder, like the last words of Frank Garrett or something. And then it's just, oh, that, uh, that, that, that happened in real life. Real people died as a consequence of this. And we're like, yeah, devil, lol. That guy was innocent. I mean, <laughs> given the 
uh, yeah, given what we've seen from the Conjuring universe so far, I would assume you're right and it's going to be quite distasteful. But I, I don't think that, you know, they could go down the route of, yes, the devil exists, but this guy made his own choice. Like, the, you know, it might there might be a bit of a bait and switch. I'm not saying it's impossible. I am saying it's unlikely. So that's, uh, that's our views on films up and coming. Now, let's have a wee chat about Resident Evil Village. You've always been a fan of Resident Evil games, right? I have indeed, although we were a Nintendo house, so I didn't play Resident Evil until it came out on the GameCube. The first game I remember us having in the house was Resident Evil Code Veronica for the PlayStation 2. I have memories of my dad playing that when we were definitely too young to be watching it. And it has some questionable <laughs> plot elements. Um, but uh, I've loved the Resident Evil games as long as I can remember. And I also have a slightly um, higher tolerance than the general public for the films, too. But um, the games are really where it's at for me. And so what would you say was your overall impression of Resident Evil Village? Well... We completed Resident Evil Village on normal mode in eight hours. Yeah, and I'm and not, and I'm not even a good gamer. The game lasted. The game cost sixty pounds, and it went into entertainment exchange the next day for forty. So we paid twenty pounds for eight hours of entertainment. I think that was a fair enough bargain on an hour by hour basis. Like yeah. if I were paying for hourly entertainment. In other ways, you know, it would probably work out more expensive. Absolutely. Um, than like you know, somewhere under three pounds an hour. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it's not one of those games where I had any intention to go back and replay it at a higher difficulty, which I have with other PS4 games I've played recently. I I saw reviews of it beforehand which were broadly positive, you know, sort of said it's a bit of fun. And and I thought that, you know, it captured something of the, of, it was a good tribute to the series post Resident Evil 4. You know, it's, it's an action-oriented game. The puzzle elements that are very strongly associated with the earlier Resident Evil games there's sort of nods in the direction of puzzles, but we're, you know, there's nothing really as exciting as some of the more complicated, you know, routes and and items and things that we see like in Resident Evil One and Two. I agree fully. Firstly, on the length, I mean, the amount that we paid per hour of this game would be extremely exploited if it were a worker, uh, and. In that respect, it was definitely worth it. However, I do think that if people are paying 60 quid for it and they're not going to be selling it the next day, I don't know if they're getting that much bang for their buck. Mm. That being said, 
for a lot of people, like the appeal of this is doing it multiple times, you know, playing it on like extremely difficult modes, that sort of thing. And you know, maybe maybe they will get something out of this. I expect there will also be some DLC. The DLC for Part Seven, I thought, was quite quite reasonable. So my overall impression of this game. And people can read my review on horrorcultfilms.co.uk. My overall impression of the game, it was workmanlike in some ways. It wasn't doing anything the series hadn't done before, but what it did have was a really, really good location. I loved the fairy tale aesthetic of it. You know, you're fighting things like witches, werewolves, and gargoyles at different parts of it. You know, that felt new. The village itself was really cool. You know, you've got this semi-open world bit, which is basically a big glorified hub that's got dungeons sticking out the side, you know, the same way that, uh, say, something like Ocarina of Time might work. But it was still quite rewarding to see this one area change, to be able to explore little tunnels that you didn't notice before. I can't believe you would come for Ocarina of Time like that. <laughs> Ocarina of Time came out in 1998 and it's more expansive than Resident Evil Village in terms of like the, the open world aspect. Like it mm. is the, the, the village hub feels both very um, large in comparison to other, you know, comparable Resident Evil hubs. Like, you know, in the earlier games you're talking about like the mansion, but it also is a lot smaller in some ways. The Resident Evil mansions were interesting at the beginning because you were sort of slowly unlocking different areas of the map. From the beginning, like, Village has these aspects to a certain extent, but it, it also feels, like, more empty. Like, something that I enjoyed about the earlier Resident Evil games is there's a, there were a lot of sort of notes lying around that sort of unveiled... Um, revealed secrets slowly and and revealed a backstory that isn't really, you know, you didn't really have to engage with in order to enjoy just the kind of mechanics of the games and the action-oriented bits. But it kind of creates this, like, really rich tapestry of a story that Resident Evil Village sort of hints to. It ties it all together when I think at the very begin at the very end, um, there's just, the, I, I, I mean, I, I know that we're doing spoilers, but I, for anybody who's listening, who is a big fan of the series, like, you know, there's just a little nod to some of the, to how this game connects to the older games, um, which is quite satisfying for like longtime fans of the series. But mostly it feels quite empty and insubstantial. Like it's, it's like the candy floss of games. Like you're going to enjoy it, like, for a short period of time bits of it might you know stick in your teeth for a while afterwards but soon it will be forgotten (laughs) yeah it's kind of got that slightly disposable feel of uh, and this is quite a good comparison if i don't if i do say so myself (laughs) it's like the horror section of a theme park you know, you've got, you're like, oh, here's the creepy mansion bit, you know, ooh, here's the haunted lake. And I don't think many of them really stick, particularly not in the second half. The game's two best levels are towards the beginning. One of them mm-hmm. is the castle, which by now you're going to have seen in all the trailers of a big yeah. nine-foot woman walking around. Yeah. That is a great bit. And it's quite tense. You've got your stalker character who's overpowered, just like you had in Part 7, and also with uh, 
Mr. X, was it in part two? Yeah. But I think, Nemesis. Yeah, I think that what you're kind of touching on here is the fact that it, in some ways it's a sort of like greatest hits of the series. Like the Eastern European location is obviously um, reminiscent of Resident Evil 4. The Lady Dimitrescu sections, that's obviously like Mr. X, Nemesis, you know, the large uh, villain who will just kind of appear and, and is a threat. But she never really felt threatening to me in the same way that Mr. X did because most of the time it's quite easy to run away from her. Like she never mm. really appears somewhere where you feel like, oh, I'm actually really stuck now, like she's about to kill me. Um, which with Mr. X, like it's part, partly because of the like awkward controls of the earlier games. Obviously, I'm not referring to the Resident Evil 2 remake because that corrects a lot of that. But um, in the early games where, you, where you're threatened by these large creatures and you've got the sort of fixed camera angles and it's third person, it's much harder to quickly run away. But obviously, now that the series has taken a more action-oriented turn, it's less threatening. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, with Mr. X, you can hear him thumping away in the background, like, ooh, 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 shit, he's getting closer. Whereas... Here, it was a less confined space. You know, if Mr. X, he was chasing you down very narrow corridors. If you're caught in a dead end, you're fucked. Whereas if her, mm. you just run around the side. If, if yeah. Dally on on your way. Uh, and I, I think another... I, I'm, I realise how much I'm now sort of beginning to sound like one of those people that's like, ah, everything was better in my day. But it is sort of like... I think the... the the reason I really love the Resident Evil series, um, besides like a just general sense of like childhood nostalgia, is that there is a real like dread and horror which is created through the mechanics and created through the setting and through the sort of like, you know, cinematography, I guess. I, I don't know whatever the game equivalent of that is, but, you know, like sort of setting up the scenes, the fixed camera angles. Um, which were really annoying if you're trying to like run away from somebody, but do kind of, you know, give you that horror feel. But the other really important element is resource management. I don't know about you, but I can't remember once running out of ammo in Resident Evil 8. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember that either. Towards the end, it gets very Wolfenstein. For plot reasons that, you know what, I'll be generous, I'm not going to give it away. For plot reasons, you end up being severely overpowered, I would say. Mm. And that takes away a hell of a lot of tension. It re then starts to rely on you having fun mowing down all the zombies, all the monsters, which, don't get me wrong, it is, is quite good fun. But yeah. it's not scary. Yeah, by the end, you sort of feel like you're in an arcade game. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. It, it feels like you're on an on-rails kind of shooter by the end. Or the zombie mode in Call of Duty. Yeah. And and you know what? I didn't hate that. Like, I, I'm not... If that were just one element, you know, if there was... If that was one level where you feel like, wow, I can finally go to town on this <laughs> village of zombies that has blighted me for these eight hours, that would be fine. But it's the fact that you don't really feel a huge amount of threat up to that point. And compared to Resident Evil 7... Like, you know, there's some pipeline dialogue at the very beginning of this game that sort of explains why our protagonist might be um, a little more equipped than he was in the first game to take on this, like, supernatural village of horrors. 
Yeah, one line that mentions his military training. Oh yeah, it's been a hard two years, all this military training with Chris. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, man. Like, there's some really, really awkward dialogue. But I mean, sometimes it is funny. Like sometimes mm. the game is, it, you know, it does feel quite tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. I think I just wish that there was more room for for some of the you know, older elements, some of some of the things that made the original games really great, because that's something that, you know, Resident Evil, I never really played like Silent Hill or, or other games that maybe were closer to what Resident Evil used to be like. But the mainstream games I've played recently are all like open world or you're never cornered, you know, you're not, you never feel like particularly a threat. And it does there's something that those original games really captured and really did well that I haven't really felt in in recent games that I've played. So if anyone has any recommendations, yes. I would like to hear about it. Please do get in I touch. Want, I want old Resident Evil style games, but with 2021 graphics <laughs> and loading times. There's one bit of the game that I thought was brilliant, and that's the doll's house themed level Mm, being generous with spoilers here by not giving them that whole section genuinely is terrifying there's one really scary bit where a fairly underutilized form of horror comes into it and uh, then like you know your character has to has to hide do you know what i was like i don't want to see this thing properly (laughs) Like, oh, God, that whole bit was brilliant. And you yeah. lose your weapons for that, too. I mean, that was Resident Evil at its, I'd say, its most creative and its best. It was by far the most satisfying bit of the game. And then the second half of it, you know, you've got some boss battles where it's just, all right, it's a big thing. And you shoot it. You identify the weak points and you shoot them off, right? All of the bosses are exactly the same. And uh, although I agree with you that the dollhouse level was very creepy and it was, you know, it was... A high, a high point of that game at least it was so short you know like more mm. of more of that game you know th- th- there's a swamp level which kind of reminds you a little bit of Resident Evil um, 7 and also to a lesser extent Resident Evil 5 um, like the water levels um, but the, the dollhouse level is sort of it also kind of reminds you of Seven and just some other like creepier VR horror games that have come out in the last few years. Like it does kind of like actually reminded me a little bit of the was it the sequel to Until Dawn? There's a bit where um no sorry it's the VR Until Dawn game. You know the the like roller coaster. Oh yes. Yeah. The 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 introductions to that like some of the set pieces from that actually reminded me a little bit of the doll doll's house level um the lady dimitrescu castle is very um it is kind of like the old mansions i mean like some of the rooms look identical to the first mansion but again it just feels like they're kind of going through the greatest hits of the series it sort of feels like if you commit to like one location you're going to spend a lot of time in and then you know you build it up as being really really creepy then that would, for me, have been a more enjoyable Resident Evil game. But, like, you know, it, it it was a lot of fun. I think people who like the games have nostalgia for the games but don't really have the time anymore <laughs> to sit and play <laughs> through, like, a really long, really tedious at points. 
um, really frustrating game, would get a lot out of Resident Evil 8. The shortness thing, I appreciate there's maybe with uh, with horror games, there's a need to make them quite streamlined because they tend to be based around big set pieces. It's interesting playing the Mass Effect trilogy right now where you go, okay, one disc contains, or you could install disc as well, but essentially one disc contains all three games. These games have campaigns that are roughly, if you're doing everything properly, about 30 hours each. And you think of all the amounts of dialogue options that you have, the amount of characters that, if they die, are still in all the sequels for people who kept them alive previously. And you go, that that fits in one disc, and Resident Evil 8 fits in one disc. <laughs> now, the graphical capabilities of Resident Evil are obviously stronger. And you know what? The, the village... It looks pretty impressive. There's some good world building going on here. You know, it looks like an actual location in a way that a lot of the other Resident Evil games, they don't. Like, when you're looking at the police station, Resident Evil 2, and you're like, what sort of police station would possibly have this as its door? Is that where my tax money's going? Right? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, you get, you get these emblems, put them, put them in these slots, no, and then, but, then mean, you'll get to the reception more, desk. It's like, I feel that? like we're stretching it a bit now, David. Like, if we go... I mean, if you're looking for realism in your Resident Evil games, like, I think that's a bad rabbit hole to go down. Because then you start, like, getting into arguments about um, the mechanics of the T-virus and the G-virus and the, you know, all all (laughs) of these different things. It's like, mm, best not to examine those things quickly if you're looking for uh, too closely for yeah whatever the financial model of the umbrella corporation is um, <laughs> like how did the umbrella corporation get insurance I mean, that's it's my a, question <laughs> it's a very uh, it's a, a very fortunate thing that they don't specifically say it's in romania even though we know it's meant to be romania uh, on the grounds that it presents a fairly bad depiction of it. You're looking at a country which, in the 21st century, everyone uses an outhouse. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a weird sort of like completely timeless. Like in some t- some places, you sort of feel like it's not happening in modern day. But by the end of the game, I don't really want to do any spoilers. But you feel like we're, we're we are taken up to the present day. Um. I mean, Chris Redfield is getting a bit long in the tooth now. I think the, the fairy tale part gives it a bit of license to kind of to muck about like that. And also the fact that, again, Resident Evil, Capcom, they're not expecting the Resident Evil audience to be looking for realism and cohesion, I don't think, like by this point in the series. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there was something about the seventh one that pointed towards a slightly subtler way forward for the franchise. I personally really dug the seventh one. I think the first half of it was especially tense. When you went to the tanker, it lost something. I think that was when it became a bit more of a streamlined shoot-em-up. But right up until the end, you did still need to conserve ammo. You You did still need to avoid fights sometimes so that you didn't waste all your bullets or waste your explosives. And I think 7 was a way stronger game than this one. And 7 also, it wasn't open world, it was barely even semi-open world. But the world it created was very stylized. It was kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre style stuff that we're seeing there. 
And, uh, you know, it showed that you don't need to be in Raccoon City for these games to work. Yeah, I had to really stop myself from my YouTube strategy and even going, Resident Evil. That's <laughs> <laughs> the intro from the, from, I can't even remember which game now. That was the first one. Yeah, I've got fond memories of the first mm. one. I remember me, like I've been, what, I remember being about 10 years old playing it with people. You know, we'd all be sitting around a sofa like ooh, let's go down that corridor and then like leaping when the like the oh dogs God, or crows yeah, come in or something like, like that Cerberus, like yeah and the hunters like i i mean i i know you said that you thought that the enemies were quite varied in in this one but i actually think they're not really they just kind of look different like you know they they look they they didn't really behave in very distinct ways. Whereas like even in the really earliest games, you had like the slow moving zombies, the, is it Scarlet Heads? God, it's been so long since I've played the earlier ones. Um, The Cerberus, the Hunters, like Plant 42, like all of these different, the Sharks, you know, there, there was lots of different like cool locations and, and then, and enemies where yes you had to conserve your ammo like you you more likely than not could be like killed in like two or three hits if you didn't kind of watch where you were going and you had to be a lot stealthier and more strategic in your play whereas like I think some of the newer games you can just sort of like mow your way through mm-hmm. in fairness though guns you do feel pretty freaking powerful when you're when you're wielding a shotgun in this game. Lots of lovely head explosions crimson and stuff like that. Crimson head, not scarlet. <laughs> crimson head. Crimson head. Would we'll use all sorts of creative editing to make that <laughs> make that sound like you got it first time. <laughs> Overall, this was not uh, not the best Resident Evil game that I played. But I certainly not, prefer it to. Not the worst either. Yeah, I certainly prefer it to ones like 5 and 6, for instance. And to be honest, fuck it, I'm going to say it, I prefer this to part 4. <laughs> Come at me, oh everyone. Oh my god, I don't know if you know what you've unleashed. I can't imagine that there's a lot of big like video game fans who are really into this podcast. I hope, we I have hope a, not, are we? At the very <laughs> least, we have, we, have, we have Jim and Steph. Oh no, <laughs> we have to worry about being doxxed now. Oh, <laughs> well, Jim and Steph, I'm the one with the editing technology. Uh, so anyway, overall, decent game. Would recommend for a rental, if there's still a way to rent video games, I don't think there is, or just to purchase and then to sell it on to a shop shortly afterwards for a similar amount of money to what you would pay for most games. Yeah, I think if you don't already have a lot of other games on the go and you do have some nostalgia from Resident Evil, but you don't ask for too much from the game, you're happy to just play a bit of a shoot 'em up you are the ideal customer for this game. You should buy it and then return it once you've finished. <laughs> Ah, uh, God, we're so going to be bringing down the video game industry with this comment. And of course, all the influence that we have. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, with that over, let's talk about another way of playing a game. <laughs> we are going to be... Oh, my God, that segue. Flawless. It's off-the-cuff stuff wow. as well. Yeah, that's what you like me. So, we're now going to be talking about Saws numbers 1 through to 8. And then we're going to be talking about Spiral. I will have the 
through the razor wire. Technically speaking, he's not really a murderer. He never killed anyone. Dr. Gordon, your aim in this game is to kill Adam. If you do not, then Diana will die. He finds ways for his victims to kill themselves. I'm sick of people who don't appreciate their blessings. I've given you a life purpose. Looks like our friend Jigsaw likes to book himself hard round seats to his own sick beings. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. He wants us to cut through our feet. Welcome back. So, Saw, what a franchise. You know, something that I really like about these films is you can't just watch them in any old order or anything. You know, there's a deep lore going on here. There's a lot of little subplots that is developing as the series goes on. There's a really cool modus operandi at its centre with Jigsaw and the various other Jigsaws that we see. You know, the whole... Uh, all right, you can you can survive this. Pretty much, no one ever does, but you can survive this. But it's a great uh, personal cost to yourself, and it's going to hurt like fuck. But it's meant to teach a lesson. Essentially, it's ironic deaths. It reminds me of uh, you know, we have Hell in the Simpsons. You got the devil saying, "Ah, you like donuts? Well, you can eat all of the donuts, right?" <laughs> and Homer's just getting his face stuffed. And that's basically. Saw for night now nine entries. I think you're more explaining seven now. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I want to do with this is talk about it quite broadly. We're not going to do one of those film by film run throughs because that would take ages. And if anyone's interested in Saw Nine, they've probably seen most of these many times before. But do you have a favourite Saw film, Emma? I mean, asking someone if they have a favourite Saw film is sort of like asking somebody who very well remembers the 90s what their favourite Disney film is. Like, obviously you mean, except The Lion King. Mm-hmm. Or you mean, except the first Saw film. <laughs> Let's focus on this. Why is the first one so damn good? I think the fact that it all takes place more or less in one room is intriguing as a concept the mystery plays out we don't immediately know unlike the follow-ups that this is part of an elaborate plan to teach people lessons to punish people at the very beginning there's this sense of mystery why are these two men here what's the connection between the two men what's happening neither of them remembers initially they're trying to figure out why are we here? What's the connection? And I I like the setting. Like it's it's this, you know, really disgusting bathroom. The tiles, the fact he's chained mm. to the pipe, they're not close enough to to touch. There's this dead guy in the middle of the floor. It's an intriguing scenario from the very beginning. And seeing the relationship develop, seeing the realizations occur, the twist at the end, like all of that stuff makes for a great horror film. I fully agree. It's something where a lot of sequels struggle... Something that a lot of sequels struggle with is that the neatness of a premise is something you can only really explore once a lot of the time. In fact, to use a non-horror example, take Jurassic Park, for instance. The entire ethics of it and the irony 
of the audience wanting to see the dinosaurs that are also deadly, which mimics the park visit the park visitors would be feeling the same way. You can only really do that once. After you've bogged people down in the whole philosophical side of things, it's then just dinosaur action. And Sod goes the same way, where there are still mysteries going on throughout it. There are still really neat twists. And there's still things to learn about Jigsaw. However, you only have the corpse rising once. Mm. You only have the kind of discovering the motive, discovering the modus operandi once. And yeah, you're right. It starts off in such a confined way. You know, it's just two guys in a bog thinking, why the fuck are we here? And the audience are like, yeah, why the fuck are they there? I'm along for the ride to find out. Mm -hmm. So it's got a level of intimacy that none of the others have. Absolutely, yeah. Very small scale, and it's not, despite the reputation, it's not like torture porn by any means. You know, you've got a couple of money shots. Although, actually, to be fair, the entire label torture porn is, I've always hated. You know, I think if you're going to call something torture porn, but you don't call like a comedy laughter porn, or you don't look at like a, a, dr- a drama movie and call it emotional porn, then, you, then it's just elitism there, you know? I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't have any really strong opinions about the to- torture porn label thing. Like, it's not... I enjoyed... I'm sure... La- I was speaking about this last time I was on this podcast, about how the Saw movies... I have a lot of fond, like, memories as a teenager, like, watching those with my best pal. And, you know, we w- would watch them all over and over again. And it wasn't at that point... I think teenagers probably, like, have an interest in, like horror movies particularly because it's about boundary pushing and like you know wanting to put your Mm -hmm. you know to to kind of have a sense of danger but also in quite a safe space you know like you 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 feel the threat of of um you can put yourself in the position of of the survivors without ever really being you know in any danger yourself but i think that as the series goes on, like they know, they know who their audience is. Like they, they, they start to, you know, the traps are what people are watching for. I think you want to know how are they going to do, like what are, it's going to be creative. It's going to be, you know, how are they going to like put people in these grotesque situations? And as the series goes on, like, I'm I'm thinking in particular about like Saw Five, like you're con- they're constantly upping the ante. Like how can we make it more grotesque, more outlandish? And I think that the first film, to me, there's a story at the centre of that which is more in. And and I think that that's true of Saw Two and Saw Three as well. Saws One and Three are my favourites because I really like the story in in Saw Three. I really like the twist. I think it takes risks with you know killing jigsaw off in that film when there's there's still like a six entries after that point like you know they keep it going and there's still life in the old girl yet but um (laughs) the relationships the the it doesn't become clear until the very end there's that twist that the guy who's been going through the series of rooms and the doctor who is working to save um, John Kramer 
are married or, or were married and that there's a connection between them that isn't clear until until the very end and it's just a nice little twist that you know that's why I like the Saw films because they were surprising like you you felt the threat like it felt creepy but also because like you never feel like Jigsaw is justified in his actions but there's a logic to it that you can understand you can imagine somebody who's pushed past the breaking point who decides to take on this sort of like strange vigilante role and as the series get goes on and as more people kind of adopt the jigsaw mantle that becomes less and less easy to follow and more unbelievable yeah i mean from the start like Jigsaw is stupid as fuck if we take him at his word here, right? Because from the very, very beginning, Jigsaw's like, I've never killed anybody, right? But he puts, in the first movie, he puts someone into a position where they've got to take a bear trap off her head, and to do that, they have to kill someone, right? So someone's dying in that plan, right? But at the same time, it doesn't really matter because uh, maybe it's down to how well Tobin Bell plays a part, actually. You believe that he believes it, you know? You believe that Jigsaw's got enough cognitive dissonance that he's able to convince himself that he's helping people, you know? And it's a kind of hypocrisy that other characters point out to him. So the writers definitely know this. Yeah. And I think he, 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 like Tobin Bell, as much as you occasionally joke about when you see Tobin Bell appearing in other stuff and he's, he's not really acting, he's just putting on different clothes and saying different lines. Like At the same time, he does what he does really well. There's still a kind of, uh, you know, there's a vulnerability behind the character's eyes in it. There's like, there's a backing story that I think he really plays to. And he manages to make Jigsaw, who could easily be like a comic book villain, like a Riddler style character, he manages to make him interesting. So, you know, absolute plaudits to Tobin Bell if for some reason you're listening to a horror cult films podcast. Can you uh, remind me, was Tobin Bell like an army sergeant or like a headmaster of a boarding school in The Omen Part 2? Uh, that was that was The Sopranos. Why do I think it was The That's Omen because it's Lance two. Henriksen in The Omen Part 2. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was crossover. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I think with the Entries, I agree what you're saying. The third one, the, the core relationships were interesting. I particularly liked what we're seeing as a conflict between Jigsaw and Amanda during that one. Definitely, yeah. And for me, I think that was a stronger one than the second. Um, second's still a decent enough film in its own right. You know, like the, the twists in it are relatively neat. And while the people in the situation of the people of all how they've got the numbers on the back of their neck and then they go what we must do is cut the numbers off the back of people's necks rather than like having them line up or something along those lines you know it's a little bit contrived but at the same time so much balls to the people writing this where they went all right our villain from the first one he's going to be captured in the first five minutes of this one mm. And then he's just saying for having breakfast as they come in as well. He's just doing something totally ordinary. I loved the conflict between him and uh, Marky Mark's brother in that one. Four and five, the timeline got a little bit, a little bit messy. Five was a bit of a sort of saw Wikipedia page. We've got a load of flashbacks, and don't get me wrong, some of them really worked. It's got some of the best jigsaw scenes. Is like killing is distasteful. To me. To me. <laughs> <laughs> 
That short pause, it's like, I love he's bringing subjectivity into this sequence. <laughs> yeah. Every guy's like, killing distasteful. <laughs> Fuck that, I actually quite like it. I but, think, yeah, the, the, for me, the, the key thing about Saw is that it is, with along with the Conjuring universe, it's probably one of the only two, like, really iconic, like, horror franchises this side of 2000. Like, it's, it's, um... It's really iconic. Like Jigsaw as a villain is really iconic. And I really like the feel of some of the earlier films. Like I don't think that the you know, I mentioned when you were talking about the ironic death thing, and I you know, I thought that your comparison is closer to like seven than Saw. But actually like some of the early Saw films, like they kind of remind me of Seven, like because of the way that it's you know, the sort of dark, dingy police stations, the moodiness is captured in those films. It feels like you you are immersed immediately in a universe where things are dark, miserable, and there is no way out. Like, even when you're not trapped in these rooms, like in Saw 2 and in the first Saw, um, and Saw 3 also, like, you, you know... They, stay in similar locations but even when you're taken out and you're in other people's apartments or you're at other crime scenes or you're at a police station it still feels really claustrophobic like the whole universe um is incredibly consistent and it it doesn't really feel like there's a happy existence going on for anybody outside of these torture rooms oh absolutely yeah it would suck to be in the world that saw where you know, everyone's rightfully cynical in that world. Everyone's corrupt. Yeah. And absolutely. everyone's a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> everyone's all quite miserable. It's a, it's a dark series. My personal favourite of the sequels by some distance is part six. Part six is amazing. Like, it is so weird to see a six movie which should be playing it safe. And instead, it ends up making a statement about how... The American healthcare system needs to be abolished and replaced with a nationalized one because you need to take business <laughs> out of uh, out of Medicare. And you're like, yes, but you're like, how is this film? How is Saw Six significantly to the left of a Democrat party? <laughs> you know? How is Saw Six the vehicle <laughs> by which they're exploring a uh, message all about helping save lives? <laughs> <laughs> and it's through the medium of a of a grotesquely violent horror film. Like I love it. And the central arc I would say is the best in the entire series, even including the first one. Mm. Where we just watch this dude, you know, begins as such an asshole, you know, uh, oh yeah, let's just not let's just deny them coverage and so on. But then by the end, you really want him to live. You know, he's earned his survival, damn it. He's had such a shit like day however long this takes place over <laughs> and uh, you know you do feel like he's changed I thought that those lo- closing minutes were so powerful and angry it was the mm-hmm. best Saw sequel and so close to being the best some of that franchise as well I reckon I mean in some ways it's interesting it took them so long to get to the point of right now we need to blame the insurance company because like obviously the very beginning he's upset with his cancer doctor like he's upset with the way he's given that news but then it's like okay by the sixth film we're now ready to take on 
where the real problem started. It's kind mm. of like what people say about Breaking Bad. You know, if it had taken place in the UK, there would be no Breaking Bad. He would be happily teaching chemistry in a high school somewhere and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> receiving treatment on a, a, an increasingly beleaguered but uh, still functional NHS uh, rather than, like, descending into the seedy underworld of uh, meth labs in order to fund his treatment and secure, you know, a, a sort of social security net for his um, for his family or secure financial stability for his family, which should potentially be provided by um, a social security net. Saw takes six films to get to the point where they're willing to take on the insurance companies. Yeah, Jigsaw doesn't really look at systemic issues. He, he doesn't have what you call the sociological imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I think for like while this film is not quite I Daniel Blake, you know this is still a film in which in which oh someone God. has to has to cut someone open to get a key out of him, right? It's still that. I really it's, hope that that you know there there's a cell, there's an anniversary edition saw box set, <laughs> and horror cult films is invited to produce a tagline, and it is saw six is not quite I Daniel Blake, but. <laughs> but it's it, it it does have some uh, some soul. It does have some heart to it. And it's definitely not playing it safe. In fact, I would also say it's the only one of the sequels in which the main plot is more engaging than the ongoing jigsaw soap opera. There's still a few little bits where Hoffman and Jill they're duking it out, and that's quite entertaining, even if. Hoffman has what we call Hoffman syndrome, where the actor totally changes their performance once they've been outed as a villain. You know, he's just walking around being as suspicious as possible, not content with beating Agent Strom in the fifth, who's of course played by uh, Luke from Gilmore Girls, which is fun. Uh, it's, he's, he, you know, he's he's barely hiding in plain sight. At the same time, though. Uh, the, the, it's good the way that it sets up part seven. I remember speaking a while back to one of the uh, producers on the series, uh, Mark Berg. If his name was not Mark Berg, I will edit it in and make sure it is Mark Berg. But he was talking about how something that they did from time to time was they'd intentionally leave little seeds to be answered in two films' time. So you'll go like, all right, well, Jill is going to open a letter in part three, and that becomes part five's writer's problem. You know, like it wasn't like a, a big encyclopedia of Saw, an ongoing plan of what they were doing. But for the most part, the mysteries they set up, they gave quite a good payoff to. I mean, one of them that was really stupid was when they revealed that Jigsaw was motivated after Jill had a, uh, had a miscarriage, right? And that's we find out later it was Amanda who opened the door and uh, that's what, you know, hitting Jill in the, uh, the bump. There's absolutely no way that Hoffman would know this. And that sort of slightly contrived writing does cheapen it. But at the same time, it's a very consistent series outside the seventh, which I think is completely out of sync in terms of its style. I mean, I don't think 3D was a particularly appropriate vehicle for a Saw film. And I think that film seems a bit stupid and gratuitous now in comparison to any of the others. Would you agree that Saw 3D is the low point? I would fully agree. 
it's very trap heavy and the traps themselves are really elaborate. I mean, fair dues to Jigsaw for killing someone for being a white supremacist in that one. Given that he kills someone for smoking in part six, <laughs> it seems like he's, uh, it's, you know, it seems like he's getting a, getting more of a moral compass. But I also think that the three D saw is an example of where the series does actually depart from that feeling of claustrophobia and the universe like almost becomes too big. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the opening scene like takes place in like a sort of like really crowded plaza. Yeah. There's a lot of people and the more people that you involve, the less it feels like a Saw film. Like it's just, it it doesn't have that same sense of like location of, of griminess of it being dark and cynical, it sort of becomes an event movie almost, (laughs) like, you know, like a disaster movie at that point, which doesn't quite feel right for the series. Yeah, I think the seventh one is also the only one that I I could kind of sympathise with people using the torture porn label about. Mm. Just on the grounds, the seventh one is the one where violence is definitely supposed to be fun. Yeah. Like with the others, it's still meant to be fairly horrific. Uh, I mean, I do still think the problem with the label itself is it's a, you know, it's a, ju- it's making a moral judgment on the part of the audience. Like, ha, why are you watching this? You're like, okay, well, I can appreciate why some of this may not be to someone's taste. You know, at the same time, I also don't have any particular interest in watching a rom com where everyone lives happily ever after. You know, it's that some sort of a sentimental. Pornography. I think people are uncomfortable with the idea of like watching violent acts because there is, for some people, an idea that well, if you're enjoy if you're getting some sort of enjoyment out of watching these violent acts, then that like speaks to something that is uncomfortable about human nature. That people mm-hmm. don't, you know, we don't like to talk about like hor- horrific things that happen to people, and th- and this is like a sort of. Uh, dramatized and like a hyperbolic version of like violence that is that is played for entertainment and I think people are uncomfortable at the idea of like being entertained by people's pain and misery yeah I think that's probably what informs it at the same time one could apply a similar criteria to things like sport it's got a similar kind of catharsis maybe to it I think one of the good things about horror films is potentially about stimulating things that you might find scary. I don't want to get overly psychoanalytic on 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 what exactly is being stimulated when one watches it. But for me, they do tap into something that's relatively primal. You know, it's something that maybe that hold your fears from a distance. And generally speaking, most horror films will make violence look unpleasant. Most of them will be like the consequences of violent behaviour rather than going like, ah, isn't this fucking cool? I mean, obviously you do get some like that. And, uh, you know, there are some where we definitely do have money shots, but the ones which rely on money shots tend to also embrace a kind of comedic psychopathy about the world. You know, I'm thinking of stuff like Hatchet here, where, like, you know, you watch someone's, uh, someone being yanked out of her body spine first or something, and, you know, it's supposed to be funny, and it is funny, but then the Hatchet films never play themselves for realism. I also just sort of think, you know, maybe it is a slightly dark side of humanity that makes people want to watch these, but, you know, it's a bit of a sports comparison. 
Dana White, the guy who runs UFC, I remember him pondering the popularity of UFC. He goes, long before man chucked a ball to another man, two men started fighting, and then one of them sat on a rock and watched. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there's something like that to horror films. Jigsaw was, of course, the last revival that we had. And uh, for me... I really, I really enjoyed this one. I thought with Jigsaw, it's a shame that we're not, probably not getting a sequel to it. I mean, it's been four years and now we've got a new timeline, so I don't think we're ever going to see what would happen next with the, the new Jigsaw. But something that did really well was, as an audience member, it made me feel like, ooh, a bit unsafe in the hands of this directors, or these directors, in fact. It was uh, two brothers that made it. It's uh, like Wes Craven said, you know, you have to fear the director. You have to think that anyone can die or something unexpected has to happen. And with that one, you got three plot twists that happen within 10 minutes. All of them land. And I reckon the moment when you re- when like you know we see Jigsaw again, and spoiler territory here, but I did say at the start, the point we see Jigsaw again, for some reason, it never even occurred to me that this is taking place at the, at the, at the, in the past. Despite that it does play it completely fair, there are huge clues throughout the course of that movie that this is taking place in the past. But it never entered my head. And then it's I'm like going, why is Jigsaw there? You know, is this like his twin brother? Did, did someone like stop his head being cut off and like throw it back on what the fuck is going on right and then you find out later and it's like of course it's that rug pull moment that the series like that's a series at its best that sort of thing so yeah i thought jigsaw was wonderful i know that you can't remember jigsaw in the slightest i remember nothing about jigsaw. <laughs> but it's uh you know it's a, it's a respectable way for the franchise to go you know if um if you're listening into this mark berg I think you should produce another Jigsaw film. Jigsaw Part 2, for the fans. <laughs> so, uh, anything else you want to bring in about the Saw films while we're at this? I've kind of said everything I've got to say about them. Like, I think that Saw, Saws 1 through 3 are great, good. I personally could have been quite happy if the CDs had left it there. Although I do like 6, 4 and 5 for me were just treading water. Like, I didn't get a lot out of them. You know, we spent one weekend watching all 7 at that point Saw films. A weekend? We spent one day watching all 7 of them. Yeah, yeah. We started early. Like, we watched the first at least five of them in the daytime uh, in a sweltering flat in Whitechapel and still I enjoyed that experience more than watching like the the later ones when it was more suitably spooky and cool because it was just like like all series do you know like by the time you get to film five six seven like generally speaking it's very unlikely that you're going to be surprised or interested that there's going to be anything original or new. I did like the sixth one, but I think it's the exception to to the rule. Cool. Uh, something else I want to add just before we move on to our feature presentation is that Spiral is the first one since the first film. It's a terrible sentence. Spiral is the first one since the original film to have used a pun in its title. Because in Spiral, we're watching a character uh, unravel, we're watching him spiral out of control. Whereas in the first one, what it does quite knowingly 
is it's using, of course, the name Saw as a play in voyeurism, because Jigsaw, you know, oh, he gets himself a front row seat. And it's almost like it's kind of ironically preempting all the voyeurism debates that the sequels and uh, some of their compatriots like uh, Hostel or Devil's Rejects will inspire. But for me, Saw series is my favourite franchise. Bit of bias, but hey, they're great to watch with cinema, they're great to watch with people, and I just love that nothing is truly forgotten about in these films. Anyway, on that point, let's talk about Spiral. Will Spiral be something that you quickly forget? Our feature presentation, Spiral began life as a pitch by Chris Rock when he met one of the producers, presumably a labour of love for him. After all, he worked way harder on this for less money than he'd usually get, since he was apparently doing all-night rewriting and also took the role as a producer. And what he's come out with is a genuinely quite new direction for the series to go in. Yes, Spiral ditches the soap opera elements for a much simpler, more streamlined lore. And a premise that so grabbed him and grabbed the producer as well is a really quite good one. You know, it's a guy killing off corrupt cops. How timely can you get? Emma, were you a big fan of Spiral from the Book of Saw? I enjoyed Spiral. If I was being generous, I would say in the grand scheme of saws, it's a three-star saw. Um, If I wasn't being so generous, I would maybe say two and a half stars because I was entertained. And the reason I was entertained was because of Chris Rock. I didn't find him a particularly convincing actor. Like, I think there were points where he was supposed to be like, playing like uh, it for drama and the camera work <laughs> had to do quite a lot of the heavy lifting you know there's bits where he's supposed to be sort of feeling a bit tortured and the camera just shakes because it's like okay that, that's going to make it look like he's kind of <laughs> tortured but I think you know it kind of opens on Chris Rock basically doing like a bit of stand-up about Forrest Gump and that was very entertaining. Like there, there are little humorous um, sort of interludes where he's sort of like doing a bit of observational comedy, which just elevates scenes which would otherwise be a bit boring. And when those sort of injections are not there, quite a lot of the dialogue is very pipeline and almost laughably bad in places. Yes, yes, I, I would... Um... I would agree with that. I think with Rock's performance, he seems to treat the dramatic scenes as 
I'll speak slower than I usually would. And they're not wholly compelling. I think part of his foes maybe that with a couple of characters, so his character Zeke and his partner William, they're the developed parts in this. Everyone else is essentially functional. You know, they're there. Yeah, they're, 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 archetypes. They're, yeah, they're archetypes that are just there to advance the plot. Uh, by the way, folks, we will be leaving no spoiler unturned. So, <laughs> but we'll be coming towards their relationship in a bit more detail as we go on. Uh, if you're only listening to this to know if it is good or not, I give it three and a half stars. So, moving on. Uh, something that this does, which I thought was nice, was he said, okay, torture films are maybe a bit long of a tooth now. We're going to ditch the trap element to some extent. There's four traps in the film, I believe, and one of them we barely see. Actually, no, no, five traps, including the very end. But one of them we barely see, and uh, only one, and one of them's just a money shot, you know. So we don't have the same focus on the traps that we have had in some of the others. And it leads to a more story-focused piece, I'd say. I would agree. I mean, we're obviously following Chris Rock's character and it's a more, although there's not a huge amount to it, it's more convincing than some of the previous entries. I think that most of the characters are pretty boring. Chris Rock's inclusion like very much elevates the whole piece. I would have, I would really like to see Chris Rock take on like a, a proper comedy horror, like along the lines of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, or even like the likes of Shaun of the Dead, like something where like it is a lot more deliberately comic mm. rather than like comedy sort of added in as something to kind of like give it, um, you know, give Chris Rock a, a chance to shine really doing what he does best. Um, but like as a horror film, you know, it worked. Like there were a couple of bits where I was actually jumping out of my seat in, in the cinema. Um, but I would say that mostly like it because the dialogue is so pipeline because most of the characters are so underdeveloped i mean what is samuel L. jackson doing there like <laughs> he is he i am assuming that he owes chris rock some money or he lost a game of cards to him and that's why he's involved because he you know the interactions between them like are are funny like when he first when he's first in his apartment um the, the interactions between them are, are entertaining, but the psychology of that character is so underdeveloped. You know, like, oh yeah, I assume he wasn't around for that long of the shoot. Like Chris Rock's character, I mean, even like a couple of extra lines which sort of explain why you know he was embroiled in all of this like systemic um, corruption. You know why he thought that was a justifiable choice. Like that's that's completely absent. We get the idea that oh, Chris Rock is like the one good cop, um, but we don't really get us. And and so we're buying into the idea that okay, well, all of the police in this film are bad, and his dad is part of that. But there's no kind of, you know, it ne- the film never tries to understand why that is or to understand, you know, the the political statements that it kind of makes that are very heavy handed towards the end are actually quite weak in terms of like what they're actually trying to say yeah because it gets very close to making this a piece about systemic racism within within the police and 
a kind of culture of cover-ups that go on there. However, I think to be safe, it immediately pulls back by saying, all right, well, the person who designed this entire system, the architect of the whole thing, is Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> and I think with uh, their scenes, part of it was just a thrill of seeing two huge actors appearing in a Saw film. Like, that's just fucking strange. You know, up until this point, the most famous actors we've had are Tobin Bell, who was not famous at the time. The guy from Men in Tights, uh, <laughs> Gary Elwes, who, again, wasn't huge when he did that. You know, he, he was on his way down when he did Saw. And uh, Danny Glover, who uh, was only the first. So, like, it was weird seeing Samuel L. Jackson in this, a guy who is instantly recognisable from all the Marvel films. And Chris Rock, one of the world's biggest comedians, appearing in part nine of a horror series. And I think the thing is, like, it it did feel strange to be watching a horror film with a black protagonist. You know, like, obviously, like, Get Out and Us are the only really mainstream horror films that I can think of that have black protagonists and that was a massive deal and the fact that there's a black protagonist in a saw film is you know it, it felt like oh this is this is quite rare but also you're, you're just kind of thinking why like why are we why is this not more in place uh, yeah and while i don't think it really went into sort of politics of of, uh, of law and order or anything like that it still added a new, di- a new dimension to the film. In fact, the whole feel of this film was quite different to the others. It, like, I liked that we had a lot of incidental dialogue going on in here. You know, you had uh, like stuff like the characters just shooting the breeze about Forrest Gump, for instance. Uh, you know, you've got a bit more kind of context for uh, Chris Rock when you, Chris Rock when you would a standard protagonist. It was the most. A character-centric film since since the sixth one, and it's certainly like one of only about three or four of it I would call character-driven. Uh, so that really worked in its favour. There were some interesting like visual gags, like the bit from the trailer where you see Chris Rock like with the handcuff to the pipe, <laughs> the saw, and then how he gets it. I won't bother spoiling that bit because it, if anybody watches the film, it would. You know, it's it's fun to see like how that kind of develops, but um, that you know, there's lots of callbacks to the earlier films. Like in some ways, it's kind of comparable to Resident Evil Eight because it it does celebrate some of the um, you know, some of what made the earlier films successful, and it does kind of feel like you're back to a sort of um, you know, quite claustrophobic sort of psychologically troubling um, kind of setting. But at the same time, I felt a lot of the storytelling was quite clumsy. There's repeated use of flashbacks to scenes as if it, it kind of like treats the audience like they are incapable of remembering anything that happened more than half an hour ago. <laughs> oh, and I love the bits we try and make them look younger by giving facial hair and stuff. Yeah, which... <laughs> This is just not great. Um, Something I really liked about the callbacks of the earlier films is how it's able to uh, reuse some of the iconography from the prior films, but give them a new meaning. So things like the puppets, for example, or the uh, pig mask, 
these take on a whole new significance when they're being applied to a film about corrupt police officers. Absolutely. And, and like it, it, it benefits as well from having Darren Lynn Bousman coming back as the uh, as a director, you know, because after doing two to four, now while he doesn't use it the same, he doesn't have quite the same sort of uh, ooh, weird cutaways and stuff like that in it, and uh, slightly goofy transitions between sequences, <laughs> like the bit where someone chucks glass at a mirror and goes into the next scene. What he does give is the usual kind of kaleidoscope of carnage that we have, you know, where you've got lots of big, bright primary colours going on here. And I really liked that he leaves the confines of small, dank rooms at points to take place, uh, to take so scenes take place outside. It was something that was both very much consistent with the aesthetic of Saw, but also pushing it to a slightly new direction. So I think it had a lot going for it. I also thought that, like, being back in the cinema was fantastic. You know, it was great going in after 14 months, this film has been long-term delayed, and what do we see first? Some fireworks. I was like, yes, this is just the right film to be watching right now. So... Yeah, overall, I thought it was a wonderful celebration of all things Saw. Being back in the cinema and seeing a film for the first time in like a year and a half, I think the last time I was in the cinema must have been to see Spider-Man Far From Home. I don't think I'd seen anything since then. was a much more sort of emotive experience than I had maybe anticipated that it would be because it's one of those things where there's a lot of things in the context of the pandemic that I think you take for granted or took for granted from before like going to the cinema like is such a was at that point so easily done and I would say I probably went less than once every like three or four months um, I would say I largely migrated to watching things on the small screen or even like on um, laptops and phones. And there's that advert right before the, the cinema started. Oh, the which, John Boyega one. Yeah, the John Boyega one where he's talking about, um, you know, that that was in cinemas like long before COVID. But it was about, you know, oh, the cinema is an experience that can't be imitated. You can't You can't get that anywhere except here. And it takes on a completely new significance when you haven't been in a cinema for such a long period of time. And, you know, the cinema that we were in, there was only a maximum of 40 people allowed there. There were some rows that were completely out of use and there was big gaps between people in the rows. So you're not, you know, when the next time we're going to have a cinema experience where you are literally sat next to strangers, who knows when that will happen. But it was so nice to be back. I had my first Tang Weiss blast in a year and a half, <laughs> which was even more expensive, but even better tasting than I remembered it, just because, you know, of the novelty, the experience of the cinema, like, and everything that goes along with that was, was brilliant. Whereas I'm one of those people who sneaks off to Tesco to buy a bottle of water because we don't want to pay cinema prices. I mean, I, I, that's understandable. But I, if I could make a Tang Weiss blast at home and smuggle it in in a bag, I'd think about it. But <laughs> it can't. You can't. The, the secret recipe, how, how can you do that? You know, I used to work at a cinema and the whole thing about cinemas confiscating food is a myth. There was occasionally times when they went, all right, if someone comes in with a burger and chips, for instance, anything that would smell, but for some reason, hot dogs are the exception. Um, 
then you tell them they have to eat that outside. However, people coming in with a bag of wine gums do nothing. But because it's a myth that's spread quite far, then what people will tend to do is hide their own things. Like, you'll get someone coming along with, like, a, a big bulging pocket that you imagine that's their revels or something. They're like, oh, hello. <laughs> anymore i don't know maybe <laughs> look i'm also making a comment about whether or not cinema staff would confiscate my homemade tango ice blast i was making a comment about my complete inability to replicate the tango ice blast it's inimitable it is now it's something that we gotta tackle with this movie and honestly this is your last warning we're about to spoil the whole thing so you know if you don't want to know anything just fuck off, right? So, if you're still with us, that ending is so bloody obvious. Oh, about ten minutes into the film, I turn to you and go, William is obviously <laughs> the new Jigsaw. If in front of the course of it, I was trying to convince myself that it's something else. I was like, no, no, that's too freaking obvious. Maybe it's Zeke, right? Maybe he's investigating things he's set up by himself. After all, he seems psychopathically calm with the thought of all these people dying, right? But no, no, too much evidence it wasn't him when you see him by himself and he's still shitting it, right? So then the film's trying to make you think it's Samuel Jackson. The big red herring is, what if it's his dad? No, of course it's not going to be his dad, right? Because that would be even more obvious than it being William. William seems like, here's the twist version. Now, I wonder to myself, is this because, as a member of the Saw audience, I've seen eight of these beforehand, you know to expect a twist, and you know it's not just going to be some random person. However, I really think this was a very obvious one. One of the producers, in a bit of hubris, went on Twitter shortly before the film came out and said, I reckon one in ten of the audience will figure out who the killer is. I would be really surprised if one in ten didn't figure out who the killer is. What did you think of William, Emma? I didn't guess the motivation. I didn't I didn't guess the connection, like why it wouldn't be him. But there are so few characters who are even remotely characterized in the film that you know that you know there are one of two options like scooby-doo style mystery and it was so the film was so heavy-handed in trying to set up samuel L. jackson as the killer that you knew well it's not going to be him <laughs> like there's no way it can be him i mean the obviousness of it that didn't that didn't hamper my enjoyment as much as the pipeline dialogue and the kind of boring traps and the like awkward like flashback cuts that those things all made me enjoy the film less than like the obvious twist because like I don't really that's not really what you care about what's more interesting than who done it is the why done it and the why done it for me was okay like I I didn't that that didn't I I kind of thought oh that's quite a nice way to tie it back I agree of what did make me wonder what the hell he saw in Chris Rock to begin with because Chris Rock is still complicit in all the corruption that he's supposed to be against. He's like, oh, yeah, I came to you because we share a similar ideology about bad apples and the police. You're like, what? This guy's the one who went, shh, 
uh, to tell you not to, <laughs> to tell you not to react after you watch a cop shoot your father. Like, and we've already seen Chris Rock beating up a drug dealer, right? You know, this is not your boy if you're looking for someone to take on police corruption. Yeah, but it's not about police corruption. It's about like because he he's obviously a fan of vigilantism. It's like pol- police corruption where innocent people suffer he's absolutely fine with watching a drug dealer get battered or shot like that's okay for him because he because he's literally like let's murder people who we think (laughs) are not up to our moral code the dexter code of right and wrong it's a weird bit as well where we're meant to buy that like you know chris rock's character zeke is some sort of like a, a stickler for justice throughout it and uh and also like a total outcast in the department yeah it doesn't quite add up for me that the person who lies the most in trials is also his best friend. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was such a a weak way of making him want to take the case. Like, oh, my best friend's dead. The most corrupt cop of them all. Although (laughs) his death was amazing. It was a nice opener, yeah. I think, like, this film was better than the sum of its parts because it is enjoyable. And the, most of the parts are, are not great. <laughs> the, yes, yeah, I'd agree, agree. It's one of those things, the more you think about it, the less you potentially like it. But at the same time, you know, for something that's punchier, funnier, and more angry than other entries in the series, something that gives a new kick to something like a property that's now, what, uh, 16 years old, you know, it's, uh, it's impressive. You know, it's weird to see it just still seeing a soft film come out in 2021, you know, not feeling completely dated. To me, it felt like it was going in the right direction, but I'm I'm not quite sure that they really knew how to tie it all together in a way that would feel really satisfying for the audience. Because there, there's a lot in the script that is entertaining and it's fresh for the series like you don't normally like the sort of incidental dialogue bits where Chris Rock is talking about like relationships and stuff like it's hard not to watch that and how and if you're aware of like Chris Rock's recent stand-up material for for your um, interaction with that not to be colored by the knowledge that Chris Rock is also recently divorced mm. and his 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 sort of like observations about relationships like you can link that to his like sort of autobiographical stand-up, but to me that added depth and a richness to just you know the the character which isn't really there for a lot of the other and and just something different as well. Like the character is not like another character that we've seen, but in those moments, but in other places, you know you're com- they're completely stereotyped all of the characters are and even Chris Rock is when it serves the plot for him to be like the good cop in this situation like I was actually when you see him in the beginning and and he's involved in this like robbery I was kind of like I might remember this wrong because I saw in the trailer like he was supposed <laughs> to be a police officer and I'm like now he's part of a gang like and, and then it occurred to me I'm like oh right come on like get your thinking cap on like obviously he's undercover but I actually thought, you know, it would be way more interesting, like, if he was a police officer, if there was, like, if he was a character who wasn't just... Because I think the problem is he is just a good cop, or he's supposed to just be a good cop, and and that sets him apart from the other people. But if 
he was characterized by more than just more than just like oh he's got an ex-wife who he doesn't get on with because she cheated on somebody oh he's overshadowed by like his legend of a dad or whatever like all of these things are just so rote so by rote that it kind of cheapens what otherwise could have been like a really interesting um kind of character journey for me he elevated it just enough he elevated it above the bog standard police procedural that it kept threatening to turn into you know we've got an anti-social maverick cop with a tortured backing story a drink problem and daddy issues who gets a bit too personally involved in a case who hasn't seen that film before Yet this didn't seem like every other film like that. I think part of it was also because we have this sort of anti-buddy narrative that runs through it. You know, him and William would normally make each other better. Yet at the same time, what we have instead is William kind of idolising this guy who's just a complete asshole in it. You know, and Chris Rock just seems to relish the asshole bits. You know, it's when he's at his most cocky and his most flippant that I think he's also the most watchable. You can't take your eyes off him, but you would never want to hang out with him in real life. And it just makes for quite an intriguing or at least quite enjoyable central character. It is very enjoyable, but the problem is it's completely uneven. He is enjoyable in those moments, in those moments you feel it, but then you're probably seeing something that's not so dissimilar from like the Chris Rock you might see perform stand-up. Whether that's a persona or not, I don't know. But like that... Chris Rock just comes through in those moments. But then you get, you know, the scenes like when William is like the last person, next to last person besides uh, Zeke to leave the case conference room where they're all discussing leads for the case. And William leaves to go home and Zeke says, good job today, William. I did not buy that shit for a second. Mm-hmm. Like, I really didn't. I any time where he had to do something that was a little bit more emotional, a little bit more vulnerable, he just he didn't seem to be able to access that, and that's when it sort of just felt like oh now now we're getting like the any other movie part, you know it really did to me feel like a complete disjoint between the parts that were really entertaining and and where Chris Rock was bringing something fresh to it, and the parts where it could have been literally any other actor delivering a sort of mediocre performance in a very like standard you know good cop in a bad system type role i totally agree with you i think it's interesting the point about the vulnerability we doesn't tap into because it's a vulnerability that you can tap into on stage particularly in his more recent special uh, tambourine where there's quite a pole-faced section all about his divorce towards the end Now, there's presumably a bit of reputation management in that, since by all accounts he seemed to be the the asshole in that relationship. But at the same time, taking it that the stand-up performance is still that, a performance, it's strange that he can't do that when he's working with this material, material that we know that he was integral to the writing of as well. I say, you know, maybe this is just one of those things of when the camera's on, uh, you know, when he's doing a piece of fiction, maybe the comedy is just simply what he's what he's more comfortable with. Maybe it comes more naturally. I think part of it is the script. Like I say, not exactly as an expert, but I think, you know, some of the lines are just so cheesy and so by the numbers that I think it would be very difficult to bring something like fresh and believable to it. Because you just think like, you're reading through the plot of like a murder mystery. Mm. Like it just it doesn't feel like that's something that his character would have said at that point. 
you know like the character like we've got he's cynical he's jaded he hasn't like his partner hasn't really done anything that would win him over enough to to earn that sentence at that point in time Mm. like he hasn't really stuck his neck out in a way that this character who's supposed to have built up all of these walls against everybody in the department like what has he done in that moment to to earn that little slice of like good job nothing absolutely nothing so it feels like it's completely false and that's why he can't sell it because it doesn't make sense i think that's fair would you would you rather see Spiral 2 or Saw 9? I would rather see Chris Rock have another go at a better horror comedy film <laughs> than either of those options. I'm not interested enough in... And I think the, the guy who, who played um, William did a perfectly good job with the material that he had. Like, And he was one of those characters... He reminds me, actually, of an actor who played a a villain in early series of Bones. Like he just, he looks like a sort of every man, like that you wouldn't suspect, you know, he doesn't look evil or anything. He just looks like some guy off the street, but he, he brought a sort of intensity to it that I thought was perfectly serviceable. So it's not that I wouldn't necessarily want to see him do like play that role, but I just don't really see where, where it can where that story goes from there, like what ha- what happens after, like is Chris Rock gonna like is is Zeke like where does Zeke go from there? Almost everyone he knows is dead. Like does he get put to a new place? Like I, I just I don't really see where they would go with it. But I mm-hmm. also don't really have a desire to watch like another extra Saw film unless they could go back to really back to basics. Here's something that pissed me off about that finale. Um, With William in it, it's in dialogue that his plan is foolproof. His plan is not foolproof. The entire thing hinges. He's like, I've got a foolproof escape. His foolproof escape entirely hinges upon Chris Rock joining him in the elevator and not shoving him out of the elevator. If Chris Rock had taken him out of the elevator, he'd be fucked. His master plan here is to leave in a lift, right? <laughs> That's not foolproof. Um, I know, in a in a building that he is called a SWAT team to. That, like, they're not going to be monitoring the exits and entrances of that building. Yeah, every, like, I like the idea of that every single cop runs in with no one outside of a gun. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, Zeke's still alive. Uh, and it's brilliant iconography at the end, which obviously in the years delay that this film's had in coming out has taken on a new level of significance. Mm. Uh, whilst racial profiling by police, uh, police officers is obviously still an issue before Spiral came out and long before George Floyd was killed. At the same time, there's something about that ending coming out now that I think gave it a power that it would not have had. I just wish the final act had been stronger. I wish that final act had been more fast-paced. It lacked the urgency that previous ones have. He comes in, sees it's... There's no unmasking. It's just William's just hanging by a table and he goes... He's like, you betrayed us or whatever. And William's like, eh. You know, gives him a gun and says, follow me. I think there's a lot of like interesting visuals and interesting beats and some and, and the beginnings of an interesting character, but to me it felt like they weren't quite sure how to tie it all together. 
and the the result is something that that is perfectly entertaining. If you if you like a saw film, you'll probably quite enjoy Spiral, but um, it's it's not interesting enough or exciting enough to pull in anybody that wasn't already going to watch it. Like yeah. I wouldn't recommend it to somebody that isn't already a fan of the saw films. If people re- thought the previous saw films were too tortury they might get something out of this one because it's less torture even the others but at the same time yeah this is exactly what's said in the tin you know it's saw coming back as you know for me that's not a bad thing at all uh one very last thing i want to say about this film the guy who plays william uh who i've never i've never knowingly seen him in anything else but i believe he's a recurring part in the handmaid's tale because he's a man, I assume that he plays one of the villains in that show. But I've never watched it. I just know it by reputation. But from what I've heard, uh, you know, he's a he's a big role in it. So him being in this film is quite a big deal. And, uh, you know, maybe we do have a new horror icon. I personally liked the new Jigsaw. I liked hearing the, hearing the new Jigsaw's voice. <laughs> Actually, I quite enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, if it's between him and Logan... In a toss-up, I'd rather see this incarnation of Jigsaw than Saw Part 9 coming out. But a large part of that is because I assume this this version of Jigsaw comes with Chris Rock as well. off on a list so I have got a list here from Screen Geek and Screen Geek are ranking all nine Saw films let's see if we can figure out what the order is so I know what I know what comes in at number nine what but what do you reckon is the worst Saw film to ScreenGeek.com or .net sorry not .com 3D Yes, Saw the final chapter, a.k.a. Saw 3D, comes in at number nine. What do we reckon is the second worst film? Five. Yes, 2008 Saw 5 is, it comes in at eighth place on ScreenGeek.net. What do you reckon is number seven? Although I liked it better, I'm going to guess they would have put six next. No, they have not no. put six next. Oh, you're in wait, a wait, 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 I want, still want to guess. Jigsaw. No. Four? Yes, number four. 2007 Saw 4 is number seven. Number six. What do you reckon is number six? Jigsaw. No. Six. Yes, Saw 6 is number six. Uh, I just remembered that film takes place in a zoo. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now, number five. What do you reckon is number five in ScreenGeek.net's top nine Saws? Jigsaw. Jigsaw, absolutely. They say that it's sort of like Saw 6. It isn't really a good movie, but it's not as bad as what we've seen before. So they're going down the route of it's the best one since the last good one. Right. What do you reckon is their number four? So left is one, two, three, and four, isn't it? No, four has been. It's one, two, three, and spiral are the ones that are left. Oh, right. Okay. Well, Spiral probably next then. Yes. Spiral is number four. So this means the top three are the first three. What order do you think they're in? I would assume two, three, one. Two, three, one. Well, number three is Saw 3. 
Number two oh, okay. is Saw 2. So, of course, number one is Saw Part 1. Hey, that was a fun game, just like all of Jigsaw's ones in the Saw <laughs> series. I'm really surprised that they would say that Saw 3 is not better than Saw 2, because I think Saw 2 has too many characters, although I still, like, have... I'm still taken directly back to the visual of Amanda being pushed into the pit of needles. Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> I think for me, why I reckon they picked number two as the second best would come down, to, and a lot of people do think it's the second best, and I think it comes down to the the twist that Amanda is a villain as well, which, you know, because we've seen all of the ones since then, you know, maybe, you forget, maybe we forget how much of an impact that had at the time. Because also it was a bit of continuity from the first one. It was interesting to see here's what happens after someone does Jigsaw's thing. And then she's like, yeah, it turns out he was right, actually. (laughs) So I think that was possibly it. But uh, it's also, I guess, it was interesting to have one that really focused on the killer coming in second. And the killer is being interrogated for most of the movie, you know, it's... uh, Mm I remember a while back, I was doing an interview with Daryl and Boseman, and I asked him about the decision to kill off Jigsaw in part three, which Mark Berg later said they regretted. Of like, maybe we could have just hung out for another couple of movies if we knew how many we'd have, do, we'd have done. But, you know, Daryl and Boseman was saying, or it might be Boseman, I've only seen it written down. Anyway, Darren was saying the push to get Jigsaw killed in part three was far easier than the push to get Jigsaw captured at the start of part two. Anything else you want to bring up while we're here? Well, earlier on, while we were talking about lists, I was looking at a list of the Resident Evil games ranked. Okay. Yes, let's let's talk about these. How well do you remember the Resident Evil games? Not particularly. So this can be you testing me here, but find one of the ones that, that, ha- that only has the numbered ones rather than, like... Here's yeah, all 24. Yeah, I've got it, I've got it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not the spin-offs. Okay, right, right, right. So we've got a list of 12 here. Okay. Because that includes, like, the main series numbers and also some of the remakes. Okay. So coming in at number 12. I reckon the worst one is going to be Resident Evil 6. You are spot on. Yes. Resident <laughs> Evil 6 is number 12. Number 11? It was Code Veronica, not a bad one. I literally just told you that was a fond one that I remembered from childhood. Yes, I know you did, but I, 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 I'm, just, I, I, I I'm just trying to think <laughs> no. of what ones to be. I mean, no, but it was another fond one that I remembered from childhood that was zero. Yeah, released on the GameCube. <laughs> Resident Evil Zero is second worst. Although this list is from Tech Radar, and they have been reasonably kind even to the Resident Evil Six. They're not really ranking them in terms of oh, this one's really rubbish can you guess what number 10 is number five correct yes number five which was controversial at the time because it was set in africa and involved like shooting a lot of black zombies and also because it introduced a new character sheva alomar who um i don't think appears in any of the later ones and people didn't like her because they don't like women in games Um, number nine. Uh, let's see. Okay, so 
I think I know what the top five are going to be. So I'm just trying to think of the other ones. It's not one called Apocalypse? No. Resident Evil 3 Nemesis. I think you're thinking about the film. What was the one that was set on a boat? I thought that was called Apocalypse. Was, yeah, is that not like Resident Evil Revelations or something like yes, that? Yes, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apocalypse Revelations. That's my mix-up. So no, Resident Evil 3 comes in at number nine. And Resident Evil 3, the remake, which was from last year, that was number eight. Number seven... Oh, is this one maybe going to be the Resident Evil 1 remake? No, Resident Evil Code Veronica. Okay. Number six. Number six. I reckon this will be the Resident Evil 1 remake. It was the original Resident Evil. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay, so maybe the Resident Evil 1 remake will be to yeah. the top. Uh, right. Uh, so we're now number, num- five. number five. I reckon that will be number seven. Not Resident Evil remake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number, okay, number, number four. Resident number Evil four. seven. Correct. Number f- seven, Biohazard, which I think is also the name for Resident Evil in America. It's called Biohazard. Okay, number three. Probably Resident Evil 2. Which one? The original one. Correct. Number two. Number two is going to be Resident Evil 4. Correct. And number one will be Re- Resident Evil 2 Remake. Yeah, that's correct. Yay! Okay, yeah. Resident Evil 2 Remake was fantastic. It just looked so good. And I also liked the um, I liked the ending of it better. Like, I think the game was much more enjoyable to play, obviously, than the earlier one. I only ever played Resident Evil 2 on the GameCube. I never played the original one. I will tell you what, however, is a far better game than any of the Resident Evil ones. And that is Mass Effect, which we (laughs) are going to go off and play right now. So thank you all very much for listening in to the Horror Cult Films podcast. Coming up soon, we've got an episode that's going to be all about cults. And we potentially got horror from the years we were born. So lots and lots of great shows coming up. Maybe some special guests as well. Emma, thank you very much for being on this show again. It's, of course, always a pleasure. And uh, thank you all very much for listening. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. For news, views, and reviews, check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk.